Hi, CityCast listeners. Today, we're talking about Independence Heights, the first Texas town to be chartered by African Americans, and now in danger of disappearing into upscale Houston. I'm with Tanya DeBose, a historian and founder of Preserving Communities of Color, and also a fourth-generation descendant of one of Independence Heights' founding landowners. It's Wednesday, October 26th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Tanya, thank you so much for talking with us this morning. Good morning, and thank you, Lisa, for having me on. So, Tanya, tell me about Independence Heights. Despite what the realtors and the people who market our community are telling you that you're in the Heights, you are in Independence Heights and you need to know our story. You need to know that this community was established by African-Americans in the early 1900s because we were not allowed to live in the city of Houston comfortably unless we were living in the wards and working. And Independence Heights represented that one place where African-Americans owned the land, we owned the stores. Um, and you could be safe in your community. And I don't think many people know that. Um, we are just north of the Heights. The Heights was the edge of the city mm-hmm. of Houston. It was the northern boundary. And in 1908, the Wright Land Company began replatting the area for a subdivision. And the unique thing about the Wright Land Company is that they sold land to African Americans. Which you could not do then in the Houston Heights. No. In 1910? That's right. In the covenants still to today, there's no Jews and no Blacks um, in some of the covenants in the areas of the Heights. Um, And so after about 600 families had land in the community, the city of Houston at that time was growing. Um, It was around 1915. They had amenities, um, indoor plumbing, paved streets. And the people of Independence Heights were living, you know, in more of a rural area because, you know, there were cows and farms and things there. Mm -hmm. Um, And they wanted to actually have the same amenities that they saw the people in in the city have. And when they went to the city of Houston to try um, to connect the water line, to try to get paved streets that would connect with the streets of Houston, um, they were not successful. And what they realized was that if they had their own charter as a city, they could do what they wanted to. So was this, I've heard that it was the first black community to get a charter in the state of Texas. It is. And many people, Lisa, get us confused. A lot of people say, well, there were many more black settlements that happened before Independence Heights. And that is true. Um, You had Kendleton, you had Prairie View, um, you had many places that uh, formerly enslaved people settled, um, particularly in the rural areas. But in Independence Heights, what made us unique and what makes us different for people to come and visit is that we were the first to actually incorporate. Um, And that was to get a charter uh, from the state of Texas and then elect a commission style government where we had three African-American mayors, you know, over that period of time from 1915 to 1929. Wow. Which was just amazing in the state of Texas then. Yes, very much so. So like if people want to go and see Independence Heights, if they want to go visit it, is there much that they can see that'll give them a sense of that history? So sure, if they came down North Main Street, the first thing you're going to notice is there's probably a million churches. Um, And what we know about churches is that they were the gathering places, even in the plantation life. Um, It was that one place that enslaved people could gather. And so those traditions of the church uh, carried on into the landscapes of our communities. And so when you drive down the street, you're going to see eight historic churches. 
Um, along with those churches, you'll see that there are still some homes um, that are representative of those earlier times that we're working on um, to get landmarked and saved. And the other thing is that there were once 40 African-American-owned businesses along the North Main Street. And right now we probably have about five of those businesses that are still left. So are there any of those historic businesses that people could stop in and support? Sure. So um, Jackson's Barbershop is still there. Um, on the corner of 35th and North Main Street. The Jackson family actually moved in from an area uh, on Washington Avenue that was known as Cheneyville. Um, so they moved the barbershop there when people started to migrate further north. Mr. Jackson is the son of the proprietor who started it. If you go to the barbershop, it still has the original barber chairs. Um, and the most oh, noticeable wow. thing that you will find in the barbershop is that it has a picture of all of the ministers uh, during those early times when Barbara Jordan was um, in office. And there's a picture of a senior George Bush because they founded a club in Independence Heights called Men Northwest of the Bible. Uh And that picture is still there in the barbershop, (laughs) all of them. So it's like a 1960s time capsule. Yeah. So, um, and then there's those homes. So we have the Carol um, Piper House, um, Polly Carroll was a formerly enslaved woman. Her and her husband came uh, from the area. Uh, it was down to San Felipe. And they came and they purchased land in Independence Heights. And their homestead is still there. It's been in the family for hundreds of years. So how are you personally tied to Independence Heights? So first, I'm tied to Independence Heights because I am a fifth-generation descendant of the people who actually pioneered Independence Heights. My grandfather came there in 1924 from mm-hmm. Warden County. Um, he purchased a home on what was then 30th Street. It's now the freeway. Um, one wow. good thing, yeah, that's, yeah, that's major Houston history right there. Yeah, it is. So he actually was able after the freeway wiped out him and. 330 other families to purchase a home and move it to 38th Street. And that's the home that I remember. So I'm tied to this community through family, uh, through my roots and through my heritage. Um, But I also currently am the director of the Independence Heights Redevelopment Council, which works on revitalization and preservation initiatives. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So Tanya, like, what are some of your favorite places to eat around Independence Heights? Sure. So, um, of course, you know, when you ask for a favorite place to eat, I'm always going to represent my community. Yeah. So you definitely want to go to Esther's Cajun Soul Food. Um, It is a different twist because it has a little spice to it. It is one of the Uh destination places in Houston that people go. All the big stars who come, they go to Esther's Soul Food, Cajun Soul Food. Um, So that is definitely one place. And it is located in Independence Heights. And she is from Louisiana. Um, so she has that Cajun flair to her food. Um, other places that I would suggest if you want um, barbecue or the fish, we also have Gatlin's. Gatlin's has a barbecue place. They're located a little bit outside of Independence Heights, but it is a great pit smoke barbecue because I will tell you, and I don't know, Elisa, barbecue 
It has oh, to have yeah. the right wood. It has to be smoked. It is not boiled. It is not marinated. It smoked. <laughs> um, with the right Gatlin's is old school. Yes, that smoke it, ring, it's there. There it is. So Gatlin's for your barbecue. And then Gatlin's just opened a new restaurant called Fins and Feathers. And so they actually sell beef, seafood and chicken. Um, and they have some vegan, um, not necessarily vegan, but they do have uh, some options for people who may not eat meat um, or things like that. And so we just uh, had a big family celebration there. The food was absolutely just, it was off the chain. Get the homemade biscuits. You will come back. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I'm so going <laughs> to check that out. So what is it like to live in Independence Heights right now? So it's changed a lot in your life. It, it, it truly has. Um, growing up and going to church in that community, um, we were just like every other community. We were a front porch community. Um, people sat out on their front porch. My grandmother used to call it the Garrett's. Um, and they sat out on the front porch. I mean, you borrowed sugar from your neighbor, Uh um, the store was around the corner. You had a tab, um, and your grandmother would just tell you, go around and get me a pound of, you know, meat, cheese, or what have you. Today, living in Independence Heights, it's, it's quite different. Um, you can still walk down the streets or ride down the streets and still see people who will just generally wave, um, Mm -hmm. at you. It's a friendly community, but sadly what we're seeing now is more front loaded garages. So those townhouses, yeah. Townhouses. I call those modern day shotguns. Um, (laughs) that's what they are. Um, they, they, you go to- They're upscale, but that doesn't mean- they're good. And they're not as friendly as the old school. No, because you just drop up. They just see a garage face. And and you never know your neighbor. And the yeah. only time you really see people is if they come out really, really early in the morning and walk their dogs. Um, but that is it. And so you don't know who lives next door. And the other thing, Lisa, that is different about this community, when Independence House was established, it was established on land ownership. Um, and people built homes and everybody helped each other build the homes. And so now what you're seeing is it is people who come in, they stay in these townhomes for about two years and then they're gone. So we're becoming more of a transitional community as opposed to, you know, a family oriented community where everybody walked to go to school and walked to the churches. And, you know, the people who started this community are really communal people. We work together to make it happen. We united together to make things happen. When there are issues going on in the community, you know that you can count on your neighbor um, to connect and to, you know, help you out. So those things we're seeing are disappearing because the people who are moving in, they stand at their top of their windows. They see the guys playing dominoes in the lot and they call the cops on them. Um, And so we're seeing a lot of that erasure of our culture of what we would call um, our domino lots and beer gardens that, you know, Mm -hmm. normal people call them. That that was our recreation because we were not allowed to go in places um, that so many other people could. And so I think that if people understood the history, if people understood, you know, this community, um, they would be more appreciative of what those guys are doing playing dominoes. They'd be more appreciative of how important it was for kids walking home from school to know that their grandfather, who's retired, is out there playing dominoes. That was a safety net for us. Yeah, because you're not going to mess around if your grandpa's out there watching you. That's right. And so, you know, it has it has been um, a massive change um, in independent types. I call it becoming the community is becoming more sterile. Oh, so how do you change that? How do you fight that? I, I think you have to continue, Lisa, to tell your story. I think you have to continue to let people know that you're moving into this really rich, historically significant place 
what we are starting to do, Lisa, is we're starting to make sure we knock on doors, that we meet them when they're walking their dogs and let them know where they are. In fact, one the other day, um, we were promoting our town hall meeting that happened last night. And one of the guys just started reciting mm-hmm. all the history. And it was hilarious that he you know, oh. he recited the history. And he's new. Um, and he says, oh, no, I want to be here. Oh, no, I want to help preserve this history because it was not something that I knew when I bought this house. Oh, that is what you're looking for. Yeah. That's the future you want. Yeah, we, we, we want. And it's just a matter of respecting that this is not a clean canvas, as you see some developing companies come in and say, you know, Fifth Ward is a clean canvas, Independence Heights is a clean We're not. There are people there. There are people existing there. People have plans. They have thoughts, ideas, aspirations, and dreams for their community. And it doesn't have to be exclusively Black, but it can be a diverse community. And that's what they need to understand. All right. Thank you so much, Tanya. This has been great. You are very welcome. Always enjoyable. And um, when you get a chance, uh, to all the listeners, please come by Independence Heights and learn a little bit more of their history. That was Tanya DeBose of Preserving Communities of Color. Now, I am here with producer A.K. Al Moman. A.K., what's going on around Houston today? Hey, Lisa. It seems like while college and university enrollment is declining across the country, enrollment is actually increasing in the state of Texas, with Texas Southern, Rice University, and the University of St. Thomas seeing some of the biggest increases this fall. It's very exciting to see our numbers grow because it is intentional, said Sarah Johnson, St. Thomas Director of Admissions. We're being mindful of breaking down barriers and getting in front of students their senior and junior years to talk about college access. These promising increases are unique in a bleak trend post the pandemic, and after a couple of years of historic declines, it seems that Texas is riding the ship. In other news, early voting started this week. More than 60,000 registered voters in Harris County went out Monday to cast a ballot for their choice in the 2022 midterm election. While 1 in 50 Harris County voters have cast a ballot, with no straight-ticket voting, it seems the 20-page ballots are proving daunting, and people are still reporting long lines, sometimes up to 45 minutes long. Even with all these issues, people seem motivated to vote, so if you have the time, get out and make your voice heard. That is it for our show today. We love hearing from you, our listeners. So if you have thoughts either on this show or on shows we should do in the future, give us a call or text us. Our number is 713-489-6972, and we will have that number in our show notes. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk with you then. I would not dare go into my son's room. Thank you for doing this, Tanya. It's very brave.